If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew, Gospel of Matthew chapter 15. Continuing our way through the text, we're going to finish up the section that we started last Sunday. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 9. So if you would, look with me, Matthew 15, 1 to 9. We'll read the text, we'll pray, ask God's Spirit to enable us to hear his word this morning, and then we'll get to work. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Jesus answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. Let's bow for a word of prayer. And Father, we, we come before you this morning. Lord, there's a lot of different things running through our hearts, running through our minds, thoughts on the busyness of summer, thoughts on scheduling different activities and outreaches, kids club, the hustle and bustle just of today, Lord, with the thoughts of a business meeting for the members this afternoon. Lord, my prayer is for my sake and for those who are here today that you would just help us just to calm ourselves down, just to slow down. Lord, help us to be at peace so that we can just see clearly what your word is saying to us. Father, we pray that your grace would push all of those other distractions to the back of our minds and out of the out of what we're trying to do here today, Lord, just to hear what you have to say. So God, we just pray this morning that as we come before you, you're the one we want to hear. Your voice, your counsel. Father, that's what I need to hear from you. I just need to hear you speak. And Father, we know that's the heart of all those who are gathered here today. We pray, Father, that your spirit would shine upon this text that your presence would just calm us from the hustle and the bustle and the craziness of summer and vacation and travel plans and ministry and outreach. And Lord, we just want to hear you speak this morning. So we just pray, God, that you would do that. We pray, God, that you'd open our minds, Father, with focus and clarity just to see clearly what you're saying. And we pray that as we go from this place, Lord, that we would walk away understanding the importance of hearing you and only you. We pray, God, that you would do that among us this morning. Father, help us to understand from your word the uselessness of tradition if it does not draw us closer to you, if it does not glorify you. We pray that you do this this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. A number of years ago, when I first moved here to Kamloops, Uh, At that time, Donnie Spivey was the lead pastor, and uh, I stepped off 
the U-Haul truck, so to speak, and my first day at work, he sat down and he said, one of the things that we need to start doing is we need to start getting our application together for BC societies so we can actually become a, a society registered in Kamloops so we can start doing, uh, you know, taking tithes and offerings and all that kind of thing. And so we need to get together a constitution and bylaws because that is the first thing we have to do as a part of our application to BC societies. We've got to have a constitution and bylaws. And here's sort of what I've drafted. It's a, a hodgepodge of different things that I have found from different churches around town. And so here you go. I want you to take a look at it. And I want you to proofread it and tell me what you think. That is exactly what I went to seminary for, right? To study complicated BC society law and to understand how we need to function governmentally with, the, uh, with British Columbia in terms of how to get our nonprofit charity society status and all these things. So I sat down on this paper and I said, Lord, help me to have a good attitude. And I began to study it and I began to research it. And as I was working my way through these constitution and bylaws, one of the things that uh, it mentioned that it talked about, which is a good thing, it's not a bad thing, one of the things that was stipulated in there was that we had to have a board of directors. We had to have a, a council of some form, individuals that would be the decision makers within this organization who would also be ultimately liable in the event of lawsuits or criminal, criminal activity and, and those types of things. And my conviction from the scriptures was that you don't really see that anywhere in the New Testament in, in terms of the church as an organization putting all the authority and all of the power into the hands of like five sort of chosen you know, gurus that sort of uh, make all of those decisions. But my conviction was that as a church, these are things that we really need to talk about as a congregation. And so right off the bat, I was confronted with the reality that we needed to put something in place that would satisfy, satisfy BC societies, but it ultimately wasn't very satisfying to me from a, a pastoral perspective. And so I called BC societies and said, what, what if we just make every member of the church sort of a, a director on the board? Could we do that? They said, no. I said, why not? I said, that's just not how it works. I said, well, could, could we just? No, we can't do that. Anyway, so we were having all of these conversations, and they made it very clear. In B.C., in British Columbia, this is how nonprofit societies work. This is the rule, and you will not break that rule. End of discussion. We have a law if you want to be a nonprofit organization in British Columbia, you will honor this law or you will not be a nonprofit corporation. Just like that. What they said was, we have a rule, and this rule is ironclad, and you don't go around this rule, you don't go over this rule, you don't break this rule. Well, I wanted our church to actually function biblically and not according to some sort of corporate model. And so that's when things get kind of complicated. How do we write our constitution and bylaws in such a way that we can satisfy the expectations of British Columbia and yet at the same time make this body an organic family where decision-making belongs to all of us, not just a few of us, where we can come together and pray together and talk together about what the Lord and by his spirit what he would have us to do as a body. That began the sort of six to eight month thing that I had with BC societies. I wish actually Steve Hardy was here this morning. He was one of our trustees and we signed probably like six different copies of various constitutions, uh, things that went back, got rejected, got sent back, went back to him, got rejected, and got sent back. One thing that they kept saying over and over again, you will have certain things in place. 
and then trying to find the workaround around some of those things where we could include the whole congregation at the same time satisfy the law, that was the ongoing struggle. But they made it very clear, and every time they send it back, I'd call on the phone and be like, well, well you know what, explain the rationale here. And over and over again, they just said it is very simple. We have a rule, we have a law, and you don't break that law. This is exactly the mentality that the Pharisees are approaching the God of the universe. In Matthew chapter 15, they come to Jesus and they say, why are you breaking the traditions of the elders? Now, this is a Greek word here, parabino, and it literally means to go around, okay? Para is a preposition. The prefix on the front end of this word is something that goes around. So they have a rule. The elders have a teaching. It's like an ironclad wall. And if you're going to be a part of the nation of Israel, if you're going to be a part of our little group here, if you're going to be part of our community, you live on this side of the wall, and these are our rules, and you don't go outside of that wall. You don't go outside of those rules. This word to break, in some translations, depending on if you're using the New American Standard or not, it will say transgress, meaning when they say break it, they're not saying that he's like disrespecting it or he's like arguing against it. You, you won't really find teaching up until this point of Jesus really slamming their hand-washing routine. He's going to do it now that they bring it up, but he just pretty much, he just didn't care about it. And when his disciples are walking through the field, they're, uh, you know, breaking grain and eating grain and all this sort of stuff. You, you find that as they're going along in their ministry, Jesus doesn't say, whoa, hey guys, you need to like wash your hands. I know we're walking out here in the middle of nowhere in this field and there's no running water around, but you know, you need to wash your hands. He never pays any attention to it. He doesn't care. They're on the go. They're in the midst of this field. They get some grain. They eat it. Jesus never touches it. He doesn't disrespect them for this rule. He doesn't say it's wrong to wash your hands. He never touches it. He just goes around it. And they confront him on this and they say, why are you going around this rule, this tradition which we have been handed down from the elders who have come before us? And his response will employ the exact same word, parabino. He says, and, so he's not going to say to them why he's doing this. He's not going to address their teaching. His response is to just ask them a question, exactly like the question that they have asked him. His statement is, okay, why do you, parabino, why do you go around, what? The commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. Now, right off the bat, this ought to hit home to us. These are the religious guys. These are the spiritually elite. These are the Pharisees. And their whole deal was, we are the religious leaders. We are the spiritual guides of the nation of Israel. You follow us. You follow our teaching. And we're going to take you deeper in your walk with God. You're going to grow closer to him. You're going to grow more intimate to him. And here's all of our little rules. Here's our checklist of things you need to do. You just check off all these 632 rules that they had. And you'll be feeling like you and God are like this. You will just be feeling the spiritual impact in your life of honoring all these rules. So they come to Jesus, and they've got an obligation to confront him because he's out teaching about God, he's out speaking about the Father, but he's not honoring all of their rules. He's blatantly just going around them. So they come to him and say, why do you go around our rules? And his response is coming right at them as the religious leaders of their nation. He says, why do you go around God? Now he's disrespecting them. 
Now he's slamming them right where it counts in terms of their spiritual authority and the respect that they're supposed to command from everybody who lives in that society. His statement to them is, why do you go around the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? This word tradition is something that has been handed down. Last week I spoke at length about tradition and the fact that tradition isn't bad. The Apostle Paul uses this word when he's writing the church of Thessalonica. The critical difference being that the tradition that the Apostle Paul is referencing is intended to exalt the gospel, to uphold the word of God. And Jesus, when he confronts these guys, their tradition is doing the exact opposite. Your tradition is causing you to break the word of God. Your tradition is causing you to break the commandment of God, and your tradition is causing you to make the word of God void. I want you to look with me. He makes a statement in verse 3. You'll notice he says there, why do you break it says the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. And then if you go down a little bit further, in verse 6 he says, so you need not honor, so he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition you have made void. And you notice the next expression there is not commandment, it's word. So he says, you ignore the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition, and your tradition makes void the word of God. So that commandment of God and word of God are now used interchangeably. What God commands is a revelation of himself to you. And the traditions that these, el- that these Pharisees, that has been handed down from elders before them, the traditions that they are implementing is basically transgressing the word of God. It's transgressing the commandment of God. And if we're to come to know the Father through what he says, the things that they are teaching make it impossible for the nation of Israel to know the Father made void the word of God. Here's one of the things that they're teaching. It says in verse 4, Jesus, he confronts them on this particular tradition. He says, for God commanded honor your father and your mother. It's the fifth commandment. It's mentioned in two different places, Exodus chapter 20 and again in Deuteronomy. It's the fifth commandment. You shall honor your father and your mother. And he's going to explain that. Before he does that, he's going to also quote the negative. It's found in Leviticus. And Leviticus says, you will not curse your father and your mother. So you have the positive affirmation, honor them honor mom and dad, and the negative affirmation, don't curse them. He says that's what it says. So those are the commandments of God. That is clearly what the Lord is saying. If we want to get closer to the Lord, we have to wrestle with the tension of those commandments. What does it mean to honor mom and dad? What does it mean to not curse them? This is the commandment from the Father. Here's what they are doing. Verse 5, you say if anyone tells his father or his mother... What you would have gained from me is given to God, then he need not honor his father. They had this practice, and some of your translations will include a little footnote there, what, what you would have gained from me is korban. That's the Hebrew word that they would have employed. Basically, it means it's given to God, which is what the ESV kind of draws that out. The translation draws that out for us. What you would have gained from me is Corbin, or it is given to the Lord. In other words, in your old age, mom and dad, as it is my responsibility as your son to look after you, to take care of you, to provide for you, to make sure that you're taken care of, I can't do that because the money that I would normally have used to to look after you 
What I'm going to do with that money instead is I'm going to put it in the offering plate at church. They had offering boxes in the temple, and, and what they're saying is what I want to do is the money I would take normally to support you, to look after you, to care for you, I want to give that to the temple. Now, when you read this, what you're thinking is what they're about to do after they have this really difficult conversation with mom and dad, I can't take care of you, sorry, is that from that conversation, they're going straight to the temple to make out a check and put it in the box. That's not what's happening, though. If you get into the historical analysis of this text, what they are saying is, I am not going to take care of you, but the legal ramifications of this tradition, Corbin, as taught by the Pharisees, is that they can hang on to the money. They can invest the money. They can buy fields. They can buy farms. They can put up barns. They can do things to advance their estate, not going right away to write a check to the church. Just it's a reason not to give it to mom and dad, but to use that money to invest that money so that when they die, their estate would then pass over to the temple. The children are still benefiting from the economic advantage of having this cash. They're just not taking care of their parents with the promise that someday when they die, they'll give it to the church or the temple in this case. So what Jesus is saying here is that there's something very clearly spelled out in the Bible. It's not like something we arrive at through a series of deductions and inferences, looking at this text and trying to understand it in a modern context. It's very explicitly clear. We have an expression, book, chapter, verse. Quote it to me. He's quoting it. Here's the passage. Here's what the Bible says. Honor your father and your mother and don't curse them. Well, what they are in effect doing is mom and dad who have sacrificed for them, who have raised them up, who have fed them, clothed them, put a roof over their heads, they're not going to honor that. They're not going to look after them. And then the opposite of that is you don't curse your mom and your dad. In effect, what they're doing is, I mean, they're not getting down on their hands and knees and praying, God, I, I pray that you curse my mom and dad. But by removing all the financial support that their parents rightfully should be able to count on from their sons and daughters by not looking after their mom and dad, and just to clarify this, this is a, an agrarian society. They don't have employment insurance, EI. They don't have CP. They don't have a Canadian pension plan. They, they don't have these things. It's an agrarian society. You grow your crops. You live off of what you are able to produce. Well, sooner or later, I, if you've ever worked on a farm, you know that work gets very backbreaking. You are bent over all day pulling rocks out of the soil, hoeing, plowing, planting, harvesting, cutting, raking, binding the stuff up, carrying the stuff to your barn. You get a certain age and mom and dad can't do that anymore. So who's to feed them? Who's to care for them? They don't have any way of looking after them. And what these people are saying is if you just make the promise that your money will be given to the temple when you die, whatever inheritance you might have, even though your parents have sacrificed everything for you, you don't have to worry about the financial burden of looking after your mom and dad. So they're not down on their hands and knees praying, God, curse my mom and dad. But in effect, their practice is to curse their mom and dad. 
No way of providing for themselves, no way of looking after themselves. They just might as well die. And Jesus' statement to these Pharisees is, your tradition, what you are teaching, violates an even older tradition. It's very easy for us at this point to say that what Jesus is saying is he's condemning tradition. He's coming down hard on anything that's handed down from generation to generation. That's not what he is doing. These guys have a teaching that has arisen in the wake of the giving of God's word. They have this tradition that has been given, which is intended to help protect God's word in a sense. But ultimately, the tradition now has supplanted God's word. But God's word has always historically preceded the tradition, it's always come first. Now, there's a couple of questions that we need to stop and ask here. Jesus isn't saying that what is old is bad. And that's something that you and I need to hear living today in this 21st century. We live in a culture that prides itself on saying, what is some way new that we can do this thing? What is a new novel way of living together? What are new novel laws that we can implement? What are new things that we can do? I mean, the previous generations, they were nice and all, and the things that they practiced were good for them in their day and age, but we are a different society with different values. If you go back and you study the history of the world, this concept of just throwing out everything that the previous generation advocated or learned or the lessons that they discovered and tried to hand on to their kids, this is a relatively recent phenomenon. You find that in previous generations, there was always an incredible amount of respect for what the forefathers learned and what they had to teach. There was an incredible amount of respect for tradition. It's only in the last 400 years or so, particularly with the rise of the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, that more and more this mentality is coming that says, forget what the previous generations said. Forget what the previous generations taught. We need to figure it out for ourselves. We're going to do it, and it's going to be better. It's going to be happier, and it's going to make all around for a better society. Says who? The first thing that this text confronts us with, whether it's the Pharisees or Jesus, they're both looking to something ancient for guidance. The Pharisees' issue is, you're breaking the tradition of the elders, and Jesus' response is, no, the tradition of the elders is breaking something even older, which is the word of God. Now he goes on to say, verse 6, he need not honor his father and mother, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. This is the issue that you and I have to struggle with. In the way that we live our lives, in the decisions that we make, in the day-to-day -day choices that we face, we need to approach all of those questions with the perspective, what does the Bible say? Now, I am of the absolute conviction that the church it's a spiritual organization created by the word of God, constituted by the scriptures, 
belonging to Jesus Christ, which means that the first place we turn when we're trying to decide how to form a constitution would not be standard B.C. society law. It would be the Bible. That seems so painfully obvious, and all of you hear that and you shake your head. You're like, yeah, yeah, that's great. But now ask yourself this question. Apart from the organization or the institution of the church, where is the first place you turn anytime you have a difficult decision to make about how to live your life? Conflict at work? Conflict with your neighbors? Issues with your strata? You have individuals possibly in your strata who demand certain things be done with your townhouse and it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense and there can be a lot of back and forth. How do we respond to these people? What is the Christian way to respond? Or at work, your employer says to you, we need for this to equal that, even though when you do the accounting of the books, it simply doesn't equal that, no matter how inventive you get with the numbers. He says, it doesn't matter. We'll get it on the next quarterly statement. What would the scripture say about presenting false information on a report that's to be read by others? In all these situations, in all these circumstances, when we are faced with a dilemma, I think that sometimes what we tend to do is we say, I know what the Bible says, but does this situation really correspond to something found in the scriptures? And could it be that there is a third way? What we begin to do is we begin to privilege other information above the word of God. We begin to say, this isn't an exact correspondence, which is true most of the time. It's not a 100% one-to-one exact situation. Most of us, if we were to find ourselves in a situation similar to uh, the apostles at Pentecost, when you have these religious leaders saying, don't preach about Jesus, and they just heard Jesus say, like 50 days prior, preach about me. They're like, yeah, I don't know. Like, and yet all the time, we come up against situations that are not an exact correspondence. No, we didn't hear Jesus say literally out of his mouth 50 days ago to go do something, and yet we know that there's a general principle, there's a general guideline set down here in the Word, and we're called to honor it. And yet oftentimes we say, and this is what we begin to do, we see that there are slight differences between our present context and the context that we find these guys living in the first century, and we begin to privilege those minor discrepancies when really what we ought to do is we ought to say, you know what, there actually is a binding principle here in the Word of God, and this really should be what governs us. Why do we do that? Why do we privilege other information? And it's important that you answer this question. When you privilege other information above the scriptures, as you try to approach certain decisions that you have to make in terms of potential conflict that you'll experience as a result of being a Christian, is your heart in that moment to truly worship God? The only reason any of us would ever have to privilege something above the Word of God in our decision-making, in our relationships, in the way we interact, even amongst each other here in this room, the only justification 
that can be there for privileging something above the scriptures is if our heart is not truly to draw near to the Father. Jesus' statement as he's concluding with these guys, he makes the statement in verse 7, hypocrites, you're two-faced. You present one thing to this group of people, but when it comes to your real relationship with the Father, the face you present to the Father, you're hypocrites. It's one thing to these guys, but there's no corresponding looking towards the Lord. You present yourself to these people as though you really do look towards the Lord, but you really don't. And the reason he makes that statement that they're two-faced, that they're hypocrites, comes from what he says next. Well did Isaiah prophecy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips. That is, the things that they say sound good. But their heart is far from me. Verse 9, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. What Jesus is saying here, as he's quoting scripture, is that the only justification for privileging something else, be it the teachings of the elders or some discrepancy that you think is very important between what you're experiencing in your life versus the clear situations that are faced by the believers in the New Testament. Whatever information you privilege against the obedience that is required by the Bible. At the end of the day, that information, the reason you are privileging it, exalting it above the word, is because truly your heart is not to draw near to the Father in worship to him. First and foremost, in this room, the number one goal that all of us should have in every circumstance and in every situation in life, the number one goal in every conversation, the number one goal in every relationship should be to grow closer to the Father for our heart to become more closely intertwined with his heart. When Isaiah makes the statement that they honor him with their lips, but their heart is far from them, he's speaking of a relationship in which the values and the priorities of one person become the values and the priorities of another person. And that the cares and the concerns of one individual become the exact cares and concerns of another individual so that sharing a common cause and having a common focus with a common values, the two of you would become one, that your hearts would become closer together as you struggle for the accomplishment of those things. That is the essence of worship. That is the goal of what we're trying to do, not just in here on Sunday morning, but in all of life. It starts here. When we lift our voices to the Lord, what we are attempting to do is we're attempting to praise him for his excellence. We're attempting to praise him for his love of us because at the end of the day, he praises those things in himself. He is the epitome of love. All of his characteristics, all of his attributes, those are all perfection. And he balances all of these many things in his person perfectly. And as we behold that, as we are impressed by the excellence of God, it should move us 
to worship him because that is the standard which, at the end of the day, all of us, all of us feel in our hearts this longing to draw near to that standard. All of us, at the end of the day, we know when we behold the Lord that that is right, which means when we come in here on a Sunday morning and we lift him up, this is one form of worship where we see the beauty, we see the excellencies of God, we say, yes, he is perfect, we're going to praise him, we're going to worship him, and that same worship has to flow out into Monday morning. What we say with our lips here is only half of the equation. Yes, we do a good job here in this room honoring the Lord with the words of our mouth. We do a good job praising him and worshiping him verbally. But then when we go out tomorrow morning, if what we have said in here on Sunday is that we think he is perfect, that we think he is glorious, that we think he is beautiful, that we think all of his attributes of righteousness and holiness and grace and mercy are awesome, and we have no desire to reflect that starting Monday morning, or the second we come up against something that will be challenging or difficult, We start to privilege other things above doing what we know the word of God would have us to do. In that moment, we've become just like the Pharisees. And we may not codify it the way that they did. We may not write extensive sort of encyclopedias on, well, this commandment is important in this situation, but in this situation, throw it aside, it doesn't matter. And here in this particular situation, if you don't really want to pay for your mom and dad in their old age, you know, you have this other out you can do. We may not do things like that, We may not codify it, but in our own way, oftentimes, that's still how we live. Taking the example in the text before us here, all of us in this room, we were born, therefore, we have moms and dads, which means that for all of us in this room, sooner or later, our moms and dads are going to need us to care for them. We know that. We know that. And we know, particularly sitting here in this room, Pastor Josh was preaching, that Jesus has affirmed that. So we can't even start off with, as so many do, oh, well, that's old law, Old Testament, Old Covenant, we're New Covenant, so, like, you know, it doesn't matter. No, like, Jesus is affirming this. Okay, so you know that you were born... You know you have a mom and dad. And you know, based on Jesus' interpretation of this law, that sooner or later you're called upon to look after them, which begs the question, how many of us in the budgeting of our money are considering with our week-to-week paycheck the inevitable eventuality that we're going to have to sooner or later pick up the tab for mom and dad. Just ask yourself this question. When you get your paycheck, there are certain things which are clearly taught in the Bible. Tithing, saving for a rainy day, you know, emergency relief fund, taking care of mom and dad. Now, How many of us, when we draw up our budget month to month, how many of us knowing that's clearly the word of God, save our money that way. Or 
Is this what we say instead? I know I want to look after mom and dad, but man, I've just had my heart on that 50-inch big screen LED TV, and I'll start saving for mom and dad just as soon as I get that. Well, I want to take care of mom and dad, yes, true, but I also really want to go on vacation to Barbados every year for three weeks, living in a luxury condo down there because I need to have less stress in my life if I'm going to look after mom and dad. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, come on, you're being silly. I just wanted to put a little levity in the room. Most of us, let's just be honest, guys. The Bible is saying something here. We come in here every week, and I preach it, and yet how many of us actually make the jump from what the Word of God says to how does my actual week-to-week budget need to now change in order to reflect the priorities which the Father has put before me? Starbucks coffee, $5 a day. Okay, seven days in a week, that's $35 every week. Do that over a month, four weeks in a month, you're looking at like around $140. Did you know that if you were to save that money, $140 a month, because I've actually done the numbers on this in preparation for this sermon this morning, it's the cost of a Starbucks coffee, essentially, is what I'm trying to tell you. If at the age of 30... You start setting aside, and we're all kind of approximately, some of us not even close, but some of us are kind of around that 30 age range, okay? If we were to start here and now, for those of us that are 30, $140 a month, it's not a lot, $140 a month into like an RRSP or some sort of medium to low risk investment gig, We know most of our parents, they've got CPP, they've got RRSPs of their own. How many of us, if we were just to do that small amount, 140 bucks a month, it's the cost of a Starbucks coffee. If we were to do that, go 20, 30 years, you know, some of us, our parents may not make it 20 more years. But starting at the age of 30, if you were to save 140 bucks a month for 20 years, you would be able to take care of all of the needs of your in-laws combined with whatever their CPP was. It's the cost of a cup of coffee. That's all it is. So I preach this message, okay, you honor the Lord with your lips here. Well, one of the things that the Father prioritizes is looking after mom and dad. His heart is to look after them. We can grow closer to the Lord by looking after him And what it really boils down to is maybe I don't go to Starbucks every morning before work. So now ask yourself the question, how many of you are prepared to say no to Starbucks? And say, yeah, Dustin doesn't like Starbucks. It's like easy cheesy, no no worries. You guys hear what I'm saying? We preach this thing, but how many of us actually make the connection? How many of us actually make that jump? His statement here is, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. In vain do they worship me. 
And that's what I want to leave off with this morning with you. If you come in here and you sing to the Lord with your lips, but it never actually transitions over into your day-to-day lifestyle, if you never sit down with your budget and think, how do I need to budget my money in light of the priorities that the Father just put in front of my face yesterday at church? If we don't start to ask those questions, then what we are effectively doing is being just like the Pharisees. We privilege other things just like they privileged other things. We hold up other traditions and other beliefs just like they held up other traditions and other beliefs. And at the end of the day, our ability to grow closer to the Lord, our ability to walk with the Father, it's all verbal, and our heart, at the end of the day, is not actually being drawn closer to His heart because our heart, at the end of the day, is to drink that Starbucks coffee. Our heart, at the end of the day, is to get that big screen TV. Our heart, at the end of the day, is not to learn what sacrificial love looks like because we're not going to actually sacrifice to love our parents. So how could we fully appreciate the sacrifice of God sending his son to die on the cross when we can't even let go of a cup of coffee to take care of mom and dad? We have to look at this and we have to say, no more do we privilege other things above just doing what the Father would have us to do. We have to privilege the Bible and the Word of God above everything else, which means when I come in here on a Sunday morning, I am fully prepared. I am fully expecting and anticipating that something is going to be read, something is going to be said, that sooner or later, I'm going to actually have to make radical changes in the way that I live my life, the way that I budget my money, what I do with my material possessions. We are not building castles for ourselves. We are trying to grow closer to the Lord. We have to come in here on a Sunday morning. We're not just looking for the pastor to make us laugh or tell a few good jokes. We're not looking for the worship team just to put on a really awesome worship set. We have to, sooner or later, wake up on Sunday morning and say, as I'm getting into my car to go to church, I am expecting that tomorrow something's going to change that's going to be drastic because of something that God is going to say to me today as I worship him. If we don't wake up with that expectation, if our anticipation is that I'm going to go to church today and then afterwards I'm going to go to the park and then after that I'm going to come home and watch reruns and then go to bed and then tomorrow is Monday and the week starts all over again. If we wake up thinking that church is just the first thing on the checklist because it's Sunday and not that church is going to transform me this morning, then we've already become Pharisees. We've already started to privilege other things above the word of God and its ability to be transformative and powerful in our lives. If we don't come expecting the Lord to say something to us, you want to know what? He's talking all the time, but he's not talking to you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, Teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Don't flip there, just listen to this. The verse that Jesus is quoting is Isaiah 29, verse 13. The verse right before that, listen to what he says. The vision of all of this, that is everything that I, God, am trying to say to the nation of Israel, everything that I want to communicate to them. The vision of all of this has become to them like words of a book that is sealed. I have spoken to them, but the book has been shut. Now, the way he says it, he's saying it's become like this, but it clearly wasn't his desire. I've spoken to them, but it has become to them like a book on the shelf gathering dust. 
when men give it to one another to read, saying, who can read? He says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, he says, I cannot, because I cannot read. And I I wish I had more time this morning to unpack to you everything that's going on in Isaiah 29, but in effect what he's saying is it's like this. It's basically like they put the book on the shelf and, and it got dusty and it's covered in dust and they take it off and they're like, hey, look, here's a dusty book. Who wants to read it? Can you read it? Well, I can read it, but I'm not going to because it's on a shelf collecting dust. And he says, oh, well, how about you? Can you read it? He says, no, I can't read and I don't care enough to take it to someone who can because it's on a shelf collecting dust. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you guys got all these traditions, you got all these rules, all these regulations, but at the end of the day, you're just like what Isaiah said. They honor God with their lips, but their heart is far from them. The verse right before that says, the book is getting dusty. It's being sealed. And the reason that they don't want to open it is because it's sealed sitting on a shelf getting dusty. Not that God doesn't speak but that we're too lazy or indifferent to listen. Which means that we as a church, not only should we come here expecting to be changed, expecting God to say something to us, but we should expect it to come from the book. This is the other thing, and that is the most clear application of this text. They have all these rules and regulations designed, supposedly, to take you closer to the Lord, but ultimately, the end result was that you had who knows how many moms and dads, wonderful, good people that are starving by the side of the road because of a false form of piety, which says, I would love to take care of you, mom and dad, but I'm going to keep the money for myself under the pretenses that I give it to God. Relationships are being hurt. Parents, quite literally, are starving as a result of this so-called spiritual teaching. Why do you break the tradition of the elders? And his statement is very clear. Why do you break the word of God? Which means we as a church, we want to come expecting to be changed, but there's only one kind of change that we should want. We should want the Lord's word to change us and nothing else. Not the opinions of the pastor, not the extrapolations of some smart academic. We want a guy who can open the book and say, book, chapter, verse, here's what it says, here's what God is saying. And everything else is the invention of man. Everything else is man-made doctrine, masquerading as the commandments of God. And there are four reasons why that is ultimately joyless. Man-made doctrine, masquerading as the word of God, it's, it's evil and harmful, number one, because it is useless. Hebrews 7.18 says, a former, the former commandments have been set aside because of their weakness and their uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. The law of God does not perfect us, They were setting aside the law of God for traditions built around the law. So if the law can't save us, if the law can't perfect us, Pharisaic teaching based on the law equally is useless. A number of years ago on Father's Day, my wife presented to me a shovel with a graphite handle. 
I had told her, because she had asked, what do you want for Father's Day? And I had said, I want a shovel with an oak handle. What kind of blade? I don't care. Steel doesn't matter. The brand doesn't matter. I want an oak handle. On Father's Day, and I, I said I don't want a graphite shovel. On Father's Day, I was given, this is a number of years ago, on Father's Day, a shovel with a graphite handle that I specifically said I don't want that. And I love my wife. She's very frugal, very economic. I said, why, why did you give me a graphite shovel handle? Because it's stronger. That's what the advertising above it said. And it was like a tenth of the price of the oaken handle. It was cheaper and stronger. If the handle was solid graphite all the way through, it would be stronger, and it would cost $400. They have made a graphite handle that is hollow in the middle, which means that if you were to take your shovel and throw it like a spear, as it nailed some other object to the wall, down the length of that shovel handle, it would be stronger than an oak handle. But nobody uses shovels like spears. When you take a shovel, you put the shovel into ground, and do you know what comes next? You leverage it this way to get the dirt out of the ground. A hollow graphite handle may be stronger, because graphite, it's true, graphite is stronger than oak. But if it's hollow, then while it may be stronger through the length of the shovel handle, it is infinitely weaker through the middle of the shovel handle. And I told her, Shanti, I'm going to bust this thing. I, I was digging for a pool. This is when we lived in Texas. And we have limestone at like six inches. It's like, I'm going to bust this thing inside of like two hours. She was like, no, it's stronger. I went out, and it wasn't two hours. It was the very first rock. And I was sitting there, and I knew the whole time. I was like, maybe I should wear safety protect. Like, I, because I didn't have anything on my eyes. I was like, this thing's going to shatter, and I'm going to lose an eye. And it like busted and graphite went flying everywhere. And I thought, well, that's, that's perfect. Like that's, that, that's what you'd expect. It was weak. It was weak. It could not do what it was advertised to do. What God is saying about the law is that it can't perfect you. Furthermore, if you really look at it, as advertised, it was never advertised to perfect you. The law in our hearts speaks to us of the reality that we're broken, but it can do nothing to fix us. The Pharisees are taking that law and they're attempting to tie twigs to it with pretty little pink bows and they're trying to put things on it that will give it some sort of you know, impression of strength. But at the end of the day, the law cannot save us. Man-made tradition based around the law, is evil because it is ultimately useless. Number two, it is hopeless. The passage goes on to say that it is, in Hebrews chapter 7, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. There is a better hope than trying to obey man-made rules and regulations, and the hope is this. We can draw near to God by following Jesus Christ. That's ultimately what the text is saying. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come closer to him. If I say to my daughters, let's go get ice cream at Dairy Queen, and we come out of the house, and they're expecting we're going to jump in the minivan, and then I go past the minivan and throw myself in their plastic toy wagon, 
wagon and say, okay, somebody pull me to Dairy Queen, they're going to immediately despair of ever having ice cream. They will throw themselves on the grass and say, why, Daddy, why? Please, no. Just get the car keys. Just put us in our car seats. Because we would never be able to make the distance, if my youngest especially is pulling, we would never make the distance from my house on Happy Vale all the way over to Selkirk, I think it is, where Dairy Queen is located. It would never happen. It would be hopeless. And what the scriptures are teaching is man-made doctrine. Number one, it is useless because it is weak. And number two, it is hopeless because it is weak. There is no promise of getting where you think you're going to go with man-made doctrine. And number three, it is ultimately pointless. If it is useless, if it is hopeless, then what is the point? If it cannot do what is advertised, then why worship with man-made doctrine? Which leads me to item number four. Ultimately, man-made doctrine is joyless. There's traditions and the rules which do not honor and exalt the Lord will not lead you into a deeper and greater appreciation of the Lord. Which means if we are worshiping according to anything else besides the word of God, if we are looking to anything else besides the scriptures to change us, to transform us, and to draw our hearts closer to the Lord, we're going to find that we've gone somewhere, but we're no happier for having been there. And that's the point of all of this. When we come to church on Sunday morning, are we not looking for more joy? When we come to worship God, are we not looking for more happiness? And what the scriptures are saying is, yeah, there is joy. Yes, there is a purpose. Yes, there is a goal. But if you're looking for it, which we should be looking for it, we have to look for it according to the Father's word and not according to the traditions of men. My prayer for you this morning is that you would always look to make your decisions according to what the Bible says. That you would always privilege the word of God above everything else. And that in doing so, you would find your deepest joy in the Lord. Let's bow for a word of prayer.